Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. Now, something a little different this week. I'm not actually going to do any links. Uh, I have uh, a lot of interviews actually to get through. One of the uh, advantages, if you can say that, of this uh, current situation in the world is a lot of people are suddenly very available. So I have a lot of interviews to get through. Um, but I haven't actually done as much reading of the news, well, the technical news and articles as I would like over the past week or so because of this. So I did have a couple of links, but there's only like two or three. I didn't see much point mentioning them really. So I thought I'd rather just focus on this interview instead. And if you like, you can see those links in the newsletter version of this uh, podcast on christianchiller.com instead. I also did say a couple of weeks ago that I was going to try and keep this podcast um, a COVID-19 free zone. But uh, an interview came up that was actually quite interesting and, and somewhat related and somewhat relevant. And this is why I wanted to get this episode out now as well, um, whilst uh, it's a hot issue. So this was an interview I did with Quentin Rhodes Herrera from Critical Start. And it's an interview we did last week. Things have probably already changed quite a bit in the less than a week since we did the interview. And we spoke about uh, the company he works for, Critical Start, and their work identifying, uh, surveying and combating the uh, increase in cyber attacks and cybersecurity issues around the COVID-19 around the COVID-19 pandemic. So kind of sideways related in a technological way to what is happening right now and uh, what cybersecurity experts are doing to help people as they're also more vulnerable working from home uh, and there's more target uh, target hacks and things like that because there's a lot of people kind of in stress. So it was an interesting interview and I do hope you enjoy. Sure. Uh, name's Quinn Rhodes Rare. I am the director of professional services for Critical Start. So I run a team called Team Aries. Um, we are both uh, offensive and defensive security. So I have guys on one side of the house who do uh, penetration testing and ethical hacking. And then on the other side, I have um, individuals who do digital forensics and who are like ex federal law enforcement from the FBI mm-hmm. and. Uh, NCIS, all of that good stuff. Um, so I kind of operate across the broad spectrum of information security, if you will. Okay. And um, so what have you been specifically kind of looking at the past few weeks then? So the past few weeks, we've been trying to work with some of our threat intel uh, partners in regards to some of the threats that have been rumored around COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, we've been um, trying to develop content that is not sales salesy. We're not trying to sell anybody on anything, mm-hmm. but give them advice on like how to uh, train on your downtime, et cetera. And we're also contributing to folding at home. Um, with our hash cracker, because when we're not doing anything with the hash cracker, might as well figure out some usage of it, right? What do you mean by threats in particular here? I'm guessing you mean digital threats. So, yeah, what do you specifically yes. mean? So, digital threats. So, we know that a lot of domains have been bought up recently around COVID 19, um, like COVID19.bz, et cetera. I mean, the, the list goes on. Um, I keep track on a few people on Twitter who uh, do this for a living as well. And they've been pulling out large lists of uh, domains purchased 
uh, recently for COVID-19 or has the word COVID or mm. coronavirus or et cetera. Uh, we also use a, a digital uh, threat intelligence partner um, who can't name for the sake of their own requests, mm. but um, they have been tracking URL purchases and DNS purchases um, for quite a while now. And they have an extensive amount of recent purchases around coronavirus. Um, you know, and you mean, do you mean this in terms of trying to spread disinformation or what, what sort of threats are we looking at? So we're not sure what the threats really are yet. So some of them could be being used as a way of um, getting ready for phishing attacks, mass phishing attacks, um, mimicking like CDC or the WHO or any other health organization trying to spread, um, you know, malicious malware or try to spread disinformation is also a possibility. Um, we don't have really good intel yet on what these domains are doing and what their purposes are. We just know that a decent amount of them have been purchased. Is there, I mean, is there to help you here? Obviously a lot of people are in a somewhat new situation right now. A lot of countries, a lot of people. Uh, Is there any kind of learning you can take from anything in the past to help interpret the data in some way or is this kind of a new threat in in many different combinations of way it's not a new threat i mean these threats happen all the time if you take when u.s reported that they were going to create space force right um when that happened i know people went out and bought space force type urls right um it's a common theme we we find when there's mass uh, amount of information being put out that's either uh, national news or global news where malicious actors will go out and buy these domains in order to eventually take advantage or you know use them for bad. Uh, so this isn't new. This is just new to me on a global scale. I haven't mm-hmm. seen something so big. And I, and I think a lot of people um, are kind of in the same boat, right? The last time we had a, a global pandemic that... Um, had this much impact on the economy is, you know, to the point where the U S economy or U S Congress just approved a $2 trillion stimulus package. Right. Mm. We haven't seen that in our lifetime. So it's kind of interesting to see what's going to happen in the next few weeks, um, especially in the United States with the stimulus package. Every year we see um, tax threats and, and, and frauds, uh, fraudulent attempts via phone, email, snail mail, et cetera, where people are trying to trick people out of their hard-earned money from mm. their tax refund. And now with the stimulus package, I have no idea what that's actually going to look like. Um, I'm actually afraid that it's going to be tax. It's just going to be the same type of uh, you know attack vectors just on a much larger scale. Mm. And apart from monitoring domains, are there other things you look for like uh, Twitter bots or Facebook pages uh, I see on the website you also have sort of mobile security. So are there are other uh, vectors you look at as well. So we we do look at social media a decent amount. I spend most of my morning looking through um, through that through various you know threat intelligence company sources. Um, 
social media is one of the most interesting ones because you do see a spring up of like fake Twitter accounts, fake uh, LinkedIn accounts that have uh, mimics, either professionals within high ranking organizations. I haven't necessarily seen that with this, but um, I have seen in the past with like the Space Force, people created fake Space Force Twitter accounts um, just as troll accounts. But I mean, it's it's been used the same way for malicious activity as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is there, in, is there any, uh, I, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not really very easy to say, is there anything people could do because um, you can't, no one can really stop people buying domains. But um, right. short of, of that, which is, you know, you can't stop something that doesn't exist yet. Uh, are there mm-hmm. other factors that people can can do in their own personal or business security or policy or awareness to, to kind of help reduce offshoot threats from the, from the main threat we're all facing right now? So I, I think, you know, in terms of cyber defense, right, the main thing people need to realize is that nothing really changes in the way we should approach cybersecurity. We should still approach it with the fact that, you know, any email that we receive could potentially be malicious and we should be in one of those type of positions where we're questioning uh, things that we get, right? Being a little bit standoffish in terms of, of who sends us what uh, at any given time unless it's verified through a trusted source such as, um, you know, PGP, uh, pairing, et cetera. Um, So, I mean, I think we still need to be very vigilant around emails. We still need to be leveraging encryption where possible, like VPN, Um, especially with everybody working from home. Mm -hmm. Organizations need to make a huge move into having their employees using virtual private networks in order to protect the data that's going from this untrusted zone, which is the user, you know, the the employee's house, to a trusted zone, the, mm. the corporate network, um, they need to be able to lock that down and create these, you know, VPNs. And on top of that, laying, layering multi-factor authentication. Yeah. I mean, we're using our hash cracker to do folding at home to give back to the community. I mean, this thing is gone in just about two weeks. We're in the top two percent of all contributors. We do the same speed and, and um, destruction to passwords, really. Mm. If you think about it, we go through about 700 billion guesses per second on Windows password hashes. Mm-hmm. Um, so layering on multi-factor authentication on top of your VPN is really a the number one move people should be making right now, as well as trying to find ways of enabling their defenders, you know, the people who are monitoring their defensive tools to work remotely and, uh, you know, address alerts on the fly from, you know, without being at their desk or in front of the server. I have sort of three questions came out of that. I mean, sure. The first one just directly related to, to what you're saying Ignoring the the defenders, the the hackers, the white hat hackers, the the testers, etc., who kind of know what they're doing. And one of the things you said there, for a lot of people, things like VPNs, two factor authentication, PGP, these extra levels of security are a something that generally are still somewhat too complicated for many people to be bothered with. And sure. usually, when you're on your corporate machine and your corporate office, it's just kind of set up. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you get into the home situation, of course, it's different. And I think this sure. is where you, you know, on a very mundane level, I've spent all week helping people figure out how to use VoIP software, 
You know, that's yeah. actually not even a particularly security issue. That's just a very minor kind of thing, really. Um, mm-hmm. And even though password managers exist and we have major tech companies pushing for forcing you almost to use better security, almost forcing you away slowly from using passwords. But yeah. still, these are mostly things that people like you and I really care about and will go to the effort to actually, <laughs> to actually, you know, enforce them and use them. So, sure. I mean, and we all know the human factor is usually the weakest factor in any kind of security policy. Um, yep. I mean, how, how do you think you can help businesses and their employees with that side, just like making it so that it is this stressed person at home who's probably now got two kids at home as well. Um, yeah. and actually focus on this thing that really doesn't seem that important to them at this particular moment in time, but actually kind of is, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And make it easier for them as well. Are there any recommendations you have? So, I mean, I don't know about making it easier and, and you uh, bring up a good point. People are stressed working from home, right? Uh, not only are they working from home and, and they've possibly never done that, but they're also dealing with, you know, an economy crisis with mm. a global pandemic, a lot of outside external stressors that they've never had to deal with before. Um, I do know a few companies that what they've done is they've kind of converted a lot of their IT staff. And I know one company in particular took all of their pen testers and, and put them through help desk training so that mm, they can mm. help users that before mm. walking them through resetting their password, walking them through setting up VPN. You know, I think companies need to do their best in walking their, their employees through the motions, right? Because a lot of the times, like you said, this is not the foremost thing in their mind, right? Mm. They don't necessarily care at this very moment if they're going through a VPN or if they're using, you know, the best security encryption possible. What they care about is one, they still have a job, two, they're getting paid, three, that they don't fall, you know, ill to COVID nineteen, mm. you know, et cetera. So companies really have to kind of hold the the employee's hands to a point and walking mm. them through this in a way that's easy for them to understand. I think that's the only real way of doing this very easily because, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I can write a script to VPN you in and set everything up, but I'm going to have to do that across how many employees mm. do you have and my hard coding, am I weakening security by mm. doing so? Mm. Um, patience and support is probably the best thing they can actually provide. (laughs) Yes. The human factor again. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I I guess try to have policies that can be a little flexible within reason, Mm -hmm. like everything is at the moment. And and then two other things you mentioned there. So I do know what folding is because a friend was sending it around a couple of days ago, but just for anyone who doesn't understand what that is, what is folding when you're referring to it? So Folding at Home is is a project that was started by Stanford, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and like in 2000 or maybe even earlier than that. Um, so what it is, is similar to cryptocurrency mining, we have a very powerful graphics, uh, well, powerful machine with a lot of graphics cards, Titan uh, V graphics cards. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Folding at Home does is we run their program and they send us work units, what they call WUs. And we simulate protein folding. And we do it for COVID-19. We do it for a few others. We don't really get to choose right at this moment uh, which uh, uh, 
you know, disease we're actually working for, they send it based off of the, the you know, the available workloads that mm-hmm. they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, using our graphics cards, using our co- uh, computing processing power, we send that data back to Folding at Home, which then shares it amongst the larger, um, you know, research groups, uh, the medical scientists, the medical researchers, the people that are way smarter than me in in the terms of this stuff. So it kind of gives us technical individuals the ability to contribute in a medical way uh, without ever having to go to med school and, and <laughs> go through all of that nightmare that I would never want to go through. Um, and at the same time, it, it, it also kind of expands our own horizon. I've, before this ever happened, I mean, we're only talking... Yeah. almost two weeks now well in, 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 in our it. parts of the world i mean obviously it was it was in asia but i think we all just yeah. kind of were like oh yeah okay yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely it, it, and yeah. i never heard of folding uh, protein folding or protein misfolding so i mean when when i got started on the project and i had uh the red team manager uh you know spin up our hash cracker which uh, he lovingly named cthulhu um <laughs> start, you know, processing workloads, I started researching what Folio Home was, what the purpose was, what it did. And I saw things of like they created a, a computational um, uh, build out of what the COVID-19 virus looks like. And I was like, oh, that's, that's crazy amazing. What was really crazy about it was in the time we joined for about a week, the nonprofit Folding at Home had such a hard time keeping up with mm. the amount of contributors. I mean, I think it's over two million now. Wow. But they actually had to get donations of, of yeah. AWS resources yeah. from companies yeah. because they couldn't handle the amount yeah. of attention that they were getting, which is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah this is a problem you're seeing with a, quite a lot of services right now from services yes. like Folding at Home that are obviously doing something very, um, very positive to just the services people are using just to do something from home, they're all kind of getting inundated, but they're not necessarily making any more money to pay for more infrastructure. So, so right. it's, yeah. it's somewhat difficult. Okay. So then I guess when you were referring to hashing, you're also talking about cryptographical hashing and that's what your yeah. your systems are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. We, we built the Hashcracker out for the sole purpose of trying to yeah. show companies how bad passwords are. Yeah. For um, sure. yeah. And how, how fast we can crack them within 24 yeah. hours. And, and some of them, some companies are yeah. amazed uh, yeah. at some of their passwords. It's actually, I, I, I don't, was it just you a few minutes ago? Or was it someone else who earlier mentioned to me that all the Bitcoin miners should be <laughs> contributing to this right now? <laughs> uh, it wasn't me, but I, I do believe that. I think coinhive.com actually is donating a ton of research. I think they're yeah. number one on Folding at Home's website. I would yeah. have to look at that. Because I mean, cryptocurrencies uh-huh. are somewhat up and down right now anyway, so there's no reason not to use it for something better. But anyway, I digress. Let's let's sort of wrap up with talking a little bit about critical start. You talked about pen testers and things like that. So yeah, on a, sure. on a, on a normal time, what are you guys doing? So our main focus, our main business model is around manage, detect, respond. So we have a zero trust model um, where in a 24-7 by, or 24 by 7 SOC, uh, effectively what they do is they take in um, everything, all of your logs, every alert from low to informational all the way to critical, and they go through a, a trusted behavior registry. So we think of it kind of like uh, going through and saying, all right, we know everything 
in this section is good. So we're going to go ahead and ignore this because we've proven it to be good. We don't know about any of this. So we're going to check all of these. And we do that with every single client. And as our trusted behavior registry gets much larger and much more thorough, we reduce the amount of alert fatigue that is caused, right? So I think on average, we're 95% or more um, alerting on actual events that need to be addressed. Um, so that's the main core business of Critical Start. Uh, they've been, we've been around for nine years, um, been extremely successful. Outside of that, you know, the red team and blue team, we do things from red teaming to password complexity assessments to um, offensive slash defensive training um, all the way to like governance, risk, and compliance. So helping companies understand what compliance needs they may have, uh, what, how do they meet those compliance needs? Is it PCI? Is it HIPAA? What it, whatever it is, right? Um, and, um, and then also a value-add reseller, right? So we have uh, intrinsic uh, partnership with uh, companies like Palo Alto. We do a lot of Palo Alto work, mm-hmm. um, helping companies choose the best technology for, that fits their needs um, instead of just trying to force uh, you know, a, a circle into a square hole mm-hmm. um, is kind of the way I always look at it. So that's, that's critical start at a very high level. I, I'm sure I didn't do the MDR justice because it's not my f- core focus, but um, it is probably the most amazing MDR I've seen. I've been in security for quite a while, and I may be a little biased. but Two, two things there. What is your core sure. focus? So my core focus is running a red and blue. So I've been doing pen testing for um, probably seven years, doing zero-day research. So just a few days ago, I released some zero-days. I have... 15 more zero days being released next week. Um, these have been patched by the vendor. Um, so, I mean, it's, we're not dropping during COVID-19 madness. We're not releasing exploits that are going to cause more problems. For, for those who don't know, let's unpack. Firstly, let's unpack zero days. I know, uh, so I know zero it day, is, but just, just, to, just for, it's one of these things that people read about a lot, probably without ever really understanding yeah. what it means. So let's say. <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure. So zero day is a vulnerability that the world does not quite know about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, a vendor may know about it because we've told the vendor. Um, a client may know about it because we may have found it during a client mm-hmm. engagement, but nobody else in the world knows about it. So mm-hmm. um, we go through, especially in this, in today's climate with COVID-19, everybody working from home, mm-hmm. we go through a rigorous uh, process of making sure that both the client is patched Um, and the vendor has issued that patch, or if the vendor doesn't reply to us, we find ways of Mm -hmm. mitigating the risk for the, for the client. Um, but we released those really to aid people and understanding, I mean, if the vendor didn't patch it, then we provide information on how to mitigate. Mm -hmm. Uh, if they have released patches, we want them to update as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, so we release those. That's been my core focus, I guess, for, most of my security background mm-hmm. is pen testing and offensive security. Yeah. I find it much more exciting than, than blue team work, but it goes hand in hand, which is why we created Team Aries, which is the, the combination of, of blue and red team. And just so penetration testing, I, I actually, um, so I'm half Australian and I lived in Melbourne in Australia for a long time. For some bizarre okay. reason, I seem to know a lot of pen testers there. I don't exactly know why there's so many there or I just <laughs> met them. But I don't know. Um, so, you know, this can be people who in varying degrees go on or off site to actually 
sometimes, I mean, actually typically contracted by a company to try and find vulnerabilities. Um, Correct. And on site, this can be, so I know one I met who worked for a, a local council there where people were post-it noting passwords to screens and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a non-technical vulnerability yes. all the way up to the, the, or down to the more technical ones. Um, yep. So that's kind of their job. And he actually told me, that police had sort of arrested him several times trying to break into buildings and things and he'd have to present a letter or stuff like this. <laughs> yeah, we do ever get a jail-free card. Yeah. Um, what When you refer to blue and red team, what does that mean? So we, we so the way I see it is it's a partnership. It, it has to be, right? So I, I tell clients all the time, you can hire a pen test firm that can go in there, you know, destroy your network, drop the mic, walk out, and that's it, right? And give you a 100-page report and wish you the best of luck. Um, what we decided to do from Critical Start is we decided to take a perspective of blue team is going to get better as red team gets better and vice versa, right? So if I learn a way of bypassing some technology or I find a zero day that is not yet released, but maybe somebody else finds it at the same time and they exploit somebody who comes to our blue team. We can help them and we mm-hmm. can educate them on the red team mindset, on our tool sets, on our um, you know way of approaching exploiting networks and people, right? Because like you said, some of it is non-technical. Some of it's tricking people into letting us in, in mm-hmm. the buildings. Um, where the blue team can actually help us understand how they hunt us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that maybe when we go do that next pen test, we take some of that knowledge with us, we apply it to our pen tests, and we can help our clients' blue team become even better. Mm-hmm. The same goes for our research. We're building out our blue team research as we speak. The goal behind that being whenever we release a way of doing some red team activity, we follow up with a way of also defending against it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't agree entirely of just releasing all the ways of breaking into stuff without ever providing a way of preventing or, or, or blocking that technique, right? The same goes with the tools we develop, right? If we develop tools, we should also explain how you can defend against those tools being used against you. So we created this combination of a team so that we can share knowledge centrally and we can grow both our both of our expertises at the same time without having to work as a forensics person because mm-hmm. I don't have the mindset for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have the mindset of a, of a red teamer and I can help them understand what I would do and I can understand how they would try to find out what I did. Mm-hmm. And then finally, so what is managed detection and response? It's not your department, but you say sure. a critical start is, is very good at it. What is it? So... We manage, um, so what we do is we deploy a bunch of endpoints out. Um, we have a, a wide selection of them um, where we manage their antivirus, their endpoint detection response tools, uh, and any other suite of tools that we support in our platform um, that we call ZTAP or Zero Trust Analytical Platform, uh, unless they've changed the name on me in the last like couple months, which is possible. Um, but what we effectively do is we, like I said, we consume all these logs from all of their hosts that they have um, sending data to our platform. And we go through, let's say when they're going onboarding, we go through and some of that data is going to be already signed off as known good. 
because that's the only way we do it is we say, yes, we do know 100% that this is a good uh, alert, right? We know that this isn't a bad or malicious action. So it goes through our trusted behavior registry. The rest of that unknown, so maybe the informationals, maybe the lows, even all the way up to the criticals, we work with the client filtering out to say, is this something that's expected on your side or is it not? And one really easy example is um, most IT people use PowerShell every day. Um, but unfortunately, PowerShell blocks execution in sometimes. So you have to use execution policy bypass, which will immediately flag triggers on uh, most uh, endpoint protection tools. We will flag that as a bad, known bad for your company, right? If we haven't already been told that, yes, it is supposed to be used by this user on this workstation. So then we take those that information, that user, that workstation, that event, and we put it into our, into our trusted behavior registry. And so we will no longer alert on that again. Mm-hmm. But if another user logs into that machine and runs the same thing, we're going to alert on it because it's not a known good to us. Mm-hmm. So we're going to then follow back up. Is this actually supposed to be running? Yes or no? If so, if the user is supposed to, then we add it to our trusted behavior registry so that the client never sees it again. And one thing I find that it's actually more relevant now than it ever has been before with RMDR is we have this thing called the mobile SOC. Mm-hmm. So our customers can do isolation of hosts, quarantining hosts. They can immediately respond, review, and um, uh, identify what we are doing on their behalf um, on alerts from home, from really anywhere. They could be isolated in a closet. And still, as long as they have their phone, they can see what we're doing on their network to ensure that we're always following up on these alerts. We're quarantine hosts, et cetera. And the client can as well from their phone. Hmm. So we've already enabled them to do blue team work remotely, uh, even before it became a necessity. Okay. Thanks for that. That's a, a mm-hmm. good thorough explanation. Now, the last question I usually ask people, but most of the time I'm usually kind of speaking to product teams, things like that. So I don't know exactly what your answer will be sure. if you, or if you can answer it. Uh, obviously, at the moment, you're kind of busy with very particular um, activities. Mm-hmm. Casting that aside for now, <laughs> what's kind of on your or the company's plans, roadmaps for the next six months, like apart from COVID-19, are there other uh, threats you have on your horizon? Are there other features you're looking to roll out, other services you're looking to offer, that kind of thing? So we are, from my department, uh, we are releasing training. It's actually been approved for Black Hat uh, USA 2020, but that may get canceled. So Mm. um, we're probably going to offer that training remotely um, for individuals later in the year. we are looking at offering other kind of uh, blue team services and purple team services um, in order to kind of test uh, companies' defenses um, uh, and how they react to them, right? So how do their blue teamers work and how are they going to follow up and respond? Um, outside of that, I mean, the normal services that we, we continue to offer, pen testing, mm-hmm. uh, security research, et cetera, is... is uh, always going to be our our kind of main uh, 
business model with Team Aries, at least uh, mm-hmm. for the company. Um, you know, outside of COVID nineteen, continuing <laughs> to get individuals to, to sign up on incident response retainers, so that when the worst case scenario does happen, they do have a quality company they can go to, as well as getting companies to move away from those um, socks that cause alert fatigue, that mm. ignore the informationals and, and low findings, medium findings, and moving to a, a product model that is a little bit more aligned to identifying everything as much as possible. I think that's you know the, the company's main objective for the next six months, probably even a year. That was my interview with Quentin from Critical Start. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, uh, I have some new posts up on the website. Um, by the time this goes out, it should be something, um, an article based on the interview I did with Hadira Hashgraph a while back. I should also soon have an article on using Swift Playgrounds uh, and actually a lot of other things in progress that should get published quite soon. Um, I'm running a lot of online things right now. I did an online stream last week working on the Ethereum blog. I plan to do some more soon. Also recorded a new storytelling podcast. Actually going to do some test recordings of another new podcast soon uh, and some new music and all sorts of things. So actually quite a bit happening. Sometimes I almost forget what it is that I have been doing in the week to tell you about it. Oh, yes, I remember. Um, I also updated my One Day the World Ended roleplay game. So that's at onedaytheworldended.com. Uh, hopefully that's not true right now, um, with some new rules for different sorts of play. Uh, so you can play without a, a uh, storyteller or dungeon master, whatever you want to call them, with. Um, and also um, some example scenarios to get you started. So that's up there right now. And there's going to be a lot more to come very soon. Stay safe, everybody. Stay healthy. And um, yeah. Keep an eye on kristenschiller.com for any more updates. Sign up to my various social channels and newsletters there. And I'll talk to you all again next week with another interview. As I say, I have plenty to bring to you right now. So there'll definitely be another one next week. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.